Take your Bibles to the book of Acts this evening, chapter number 17. We'll begin reading in verse number 1. Probably you've heard a sermon or two preached out of this passage of Scripture. And so I'm probably not going to teach you anything you don't know tonight. But hopefully the Lord will use it uh, to be a challenge to you in one way or the other. Uh, Verse number 1, the Bible says in Acts chapter 17, verse number 1, now, when they had passed through Amphipolis and Apollonia, they came to Thessalonica, where was a synagogue of the Jews. And Paul, as his manner was, was uh, went in unto them in three Sabbath days, reasoned with them out of the Scriptures, opening and alleging that Christ must needs have suffered and risen again from the dead, and that this Jesus, whom I preach unto you, is Christ. And some of them believed, and consorted with Paul and Silas, and of the devout Greeks a great multitude, and of the chief women not a few. But the Jews, which believed not, moved with envy, took unto them certain lewd fellows of the baser sort. Uh, Brother Sean has been talking about maybe getting a quartet together, and I think that would be a good name for them. Lewd fellows of a baser sort. I think that would be pretty good. Uh, but, uh, but these folks were named uh, certain lewd fellows of a baser sort and gathered a company and set all the city of an up, in an, on an uproar and assaulted the house of Jason and sought to bring them out to the people. And when they found them not, they drew Jason and certain brethren unto the rulers of the city, crying, These that have turned the world upside down are come hither also whom Jason hath received and these all do contrary to the decrees of Caesar saying that there is another king one Jesus they troubled the people and the rulers of the city when they heard these things and when they had taken security of Jason and of the others they let them go. I want to direct your attention to verse number 6, a phrase that you've probably heard before, but nonetheless it requires our attention again this evening. Verse number 6, the Bible says, These that have turned the world upside down are come hither also. You know, in my lifetime I can't think of too many world-changing events. I can look back over the course of history and certainly there have been some things that have changed the course of history. I think when the automobile was invented that changed the course of world history. Uh, I've read some stuff and I actually talked with one of our church members uh, one time about how when the automobile was invented it put the horse out of work. And uh, then he continued the conversation and said, by the way, you're the next horse. It's a good point because uh, computers are going to do most of our work. And, uh, but that, that is a, a thing that changed the course of world history. It, but it's still funny that we call it horsepower. Have you ever noticed that? We call it horsepower, which the other day I learned that technically 13 and a half horsepower would be equivalent to the same power of one horse. Just so it's not actual apples to apples comparison. But we use horsepower because that's kind of the time that we came from and And that's a a thing that changed the course of world history. Computers have changed the way that our world operates. I was doing a little research and there's some ambiguity and some different opinions on what the first computer was ever, uh, that was ever invented was. But there was a computer 
that was essentially a glorified calculator. And uh, it, it, it was invented uh, by a man and it weighed five tons. Now, if I need to take you back to kind of your grade school stuff, a ton is 2,000 pounds. That means that the first computer weighed about 10,000 pounds, and all it really did was add up problems. Uh, when you think about how far computers have come along, I heard the other day somebody say, and I don't know how verifiable or accurate this is, but I heard the other day that there is more technology in the palm of your hand than was on the first space shuttle that we sent to space. Can you imagine? That is unreal to me. The day computers were invented was a world-changing day. Another day that in my lifetime I can certainly point to and say, at least if it was not world-changing, it was world-changing to me, was September 11th, 2001. And I think that if you were alive during that time, if you were old enough during that time, that changed our nation at least for a good period of time. I'll never forget, you see, uh, our, our country, I believe, has always been a pretty a wicked country, at least since I've been around. We've always been fighting certain battles of immorality and those such things. But I will say the day after September 11th, I had never seen with such uniformity of businesses around town putting on their sign, Pray for America. And I'm talking about people just did not care to clear it with corporate. At that point in time, it just did not matter. HR was out uh, out of the question, out of the conversation. There was no political correctness because we did not need political correctness. We needed God's grace to shower our country during those times. And I feel like at least for that time in our country's history, we all got together on that bandwagon. And and as far as I understand, that was not only in the Bible Belt. That was not only here in Joshua, Texas. As I understand, that went from California to New York City, pray for America. Which leads me to another thing. Have you ever heard people say, well, we need to uh, think, I'll keep you in my thoughts. Or, Or they'll say something like, let's have a moment of silence. What good does that do for folks? You cannot censor prayer out of, that, out of that statement. Well, I'll be thinking about you. So what? Pray for me. And during that time, our country kind of gathered around and all agreed that we needed prayer. Those are some things and some days in the course of world history that I believe kind of pivoted the direction of our world. And I'll say, I believe with all my heart tonight that we are in need of another world-changing day. Uh, I I don't want to go too far down this rabbit hole because the sermon is not about that. But if our country can, if there are people, any people, any group of people, much less uh, any sort of majority of people, if there are a group of people that truly can abort a baby. and, And by the way, Pretty much outside the womb. If you've heard any of the comments lately, them and the doctors will have a conversation. If that is the state of our country, our world needs to be flipped upside down because right now it is completely wrong. Dad used to say a statement, he'd say, "Uh, you don't like the way I'm rubbing the cat, you flip the cat around. 
And the way our world is, everything is backwards. What's, what's wrong or what used to be right is now wrong. What used to be viewed as admirable or, or somehow what people said, yeah, at least you have high standards. Now they look at you as just square and in the way of change. This is a real problem. Our world is in need of real, real change. And I'm not talking about change that is somehow mustered about because we get a, a set of drums and a guitar on the platform. I'm talking about change that is only initiated by the Spirit of God convicting and changing people's lives. I'm talking about change, the transformation change that says old things are passed away, all things are become new. I'm talking about Jesus kind of change. And that's what our world needs. And that's the world flipped upside down. So when I come to this passage of scripture and I see, notice that this is not some church theme. Notice that Paul and Silas did not gather around and say, Hey, Paul, hey, Silas, I think this is what we ought to do. I think we ought to uh, kind of set a slogan. We ought to get a prayer card. And on the bottom of that prayer card, we ought to say, Flipping the world upside down for Jesus. This was not the church agreeing upon a slogan or a mission statement. This is enemies of the gospel. And and, and in their attempt to criticize and tear down the progress that the gospel has made, they handed over probably the greatest compliment of the gospel in all of scripture. They say about just some faithful men, they have changed everything in our world. And that's what we need, is it not? Our, our church needs change. And man, we look a lot more like Laodicea than we do Smyrna. We look a lot more like those that are uh, lukewarm than those that are red hot and being faithful unto death. We need change so that we can change the world. Someone once said, if you want to make a difference, you're going to have to be different. And I believe that with all of my heart. And if we truly need this type of world change, I think it would behoove us this evening to study this passage and see what these men did that changed the world. Number one. I only have two points this evening, so good. Good for you. We can get to our soup a little quicker. Number one. They accepted God's proclamation. Now, what I want to draw your attention to is in verse number 13. The uh, Bible says this, uh, or verse number six, I'm, I'm sorry, verse number six. The Bible says, these that have turned the world upside down. The world is a theme throughout scripture. For God so loved the world, he gave his only begotten son. For light came into the World And men love darkness rather than they love light because their deeds were only evil continually. You see, God loves the world. And, 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 and I think sometimes the world is so big of a vision for us, we have a hard time grasping that it's possible. What I mean is, it's so hard to set out at the beginning of the year and say, you know what, I'm going to read a hundred books this year. And that's such a big goal. I read 66 books about every year, okay? That's just about how many I do. Uh, Genesis through Revelation. I try that once a year. But, but you see, 
I, I look at the world and I hear Jesus say, go reach the world, like Miss Sherry sung this morning, uh, go reach the world, win one more soul. I think of the world as a whole and I think, man, how are we going to do that? I mean, one missionary at a time? One representative at a time. And I think that we become overwhelmed with this idea that the world is almost too big for it to be one. But that's what's great about Paul and great about Silas. These two men who this was said about. They had turned the world upside down. They just accepted God's proclamation about the Great Commission. I mentioned a few passages of Scripture there that mention the world. You know a few more that mention the world? Jesus says in Matthew chapter 28, Go ye therefore and teach all nations. I think omitted there is understood, go teach all nations of the world. And he says, you're to go teach all nations. In Mark chapter 16, verse 15, the Bible says, And he said unto them, Go ye into all the world and preach the gospel to every creature. Acts chapter 1, verse 8 says, And ye shall receive power after this. The Holy Ghost has come upon you. Uh, and ye shall be witnesses unto me both in Jerusalem and all Judea and unto Samaria and unto the uttermost parts of the earth. You see, Jesus gave a great commission. And that great commission was this. Reach the, finish the statement for me class world now do you think that Jesus would give us a task that was unaccomplishable do you think that he would say hey I've got this great thing for you to do but and you're going to strive for it and you're going to try it but you're never actually going to do it I don't think that's the way that that Jesus would do it I think if Jesus said go reach the world He knows that every resource that you need to accomplish that mission is at your fingertips. Jesus said the Great Commission. He he said go reach the world. And if you study the ministry of the Apostle Paul, I want you to see that in his ministry, he traveled over 10,000 miles to preach the gospel. Now, there again, 10,000 is such a large number, it's hard for us to know what that actually is. So, let me break it down for you. That is Charlotte, North Carolina, all the way to Los Angeles, California, back to Charlotte, North Carolina, back to Los Angeles, California, back to Charlotte, North Carolina. And that's what Paul was willing to do to reach the world. He was willing to reach the world because he was willing to go to the world. You know, fishing in churches ain't going to catch you many fish. You know, I can I can say I want to go fishing. You know, I got my daughter a little fishing pole, and it's like a little uh, princess pole, and and it has this little fake lure that you can tie on. And and we w- I was teaching her how to cast it out in the yard. Do you know how many fish she caught out in the yard? Not one. You know why? Because there are no fishies there. We went fishing the very first time. Guess what? She caught one because we went to where fish were. What am I saying? I'm saying that if we truly want to flip our world upside down, we have to, first of all, accept that it is possible. And you say, Brother Andrew, I know it's possible. Do you? 
Do your, did your actions last week indicate to the Lord that you truly believe reaching the world with the gospel is a spiritual and very real possibility? Yeah, I, I get so weary of Christians that'll say they'll, they'll, they'll give their missions money and they'll pray for missionaries. I believe this with all my heart. If you're not willing to go to the field if God called you, you're going to have a very difficult time adequately praying and adequately giving like God would want you to. If God called you, would you go? What if God's calling you right now? By the way, there is no greater work than that of the Lord Jesus Christ. You can be the CEO of a Fortune 500 company and you had to probably step on so many uh, people's uh, heads to get to where you're at. You can have all that. You can make the big salary. Uh, Personally, I've seen that me and my wife and my family are pretty happy not making a big salary. And that's not like to somehow indicate to you that I want to raise because I'm scared to death what would happen if I actually made a lot of money. Because the ministry that I serve in and the God that I serve is the greatest and highest most noble calling in all of the world. And it only took me four years to go to Bible college. Some of y'all went to school for way longer than that. My point is this. If God called you from Joshua, Texas, see our biggest fear is that God's going to call us to the deepest, darkest jungle in Africa or, or the hardest place in the world where people are shooting at you four times a week, brother Dion, yeah, uh, that's pretty rough. That's our fear. But my point is this. God's will is not that everybody would be a, a missionary on a foreign field or else it would be a hard, place, a hard to have churches, wouldn't it? God's will is not that everybody would go to a foreign field. But if God's will was that you would go, would you? And until you're to that place where you will say, I will resign from my position I will follow God in faith. Yeah, there will be questions, there will be uncertainty, but I will go if that's what God wants from me. Don't tell me you're praying for missionaries. Because if you don't have the faith to follow God to go to the field, do you think you're really going to be praying to actually pray for the field? To actually believe that the world can be changed? These men accepted God's proclamation that the Great Commission was a reality. They were willing to go in and of themselves. There was a lady by the name of Mary Slessler. Uh, She was born in the late 1800s in Scotland to a poor Scottish family. Uh, She grew up, her and her mother always went to church, and especially she enjoyed when missionaries would come in and preach at her church. They always went to church during those times, and she looked forward to those events. And when word got back, Mary was about uh, 25 years old, when word got back that David Livingston, the great missionary to Africa, had just passed away, she felt at that moment that God was calling her, not to necessarily go take his place, but that God was calling her to the field of Africa. So it's very rare for a single lady to apply to be a missionary with, uh, w- with these organizations. And so she did. And three years later, they granted her permission and she was on her way to the field. During her time there, she radically changed the folks that she was ministering to. For instance, she went to one village and uh, at that village is a very witchcraft type of uh, area. And at that particular village... 
when some lady was to birth twins, they viewed that as a curse. And they also thought that if the lady was having twins, that she herself had been somehow indwelled by a spirit. And so they would kill both the babies and the mother. Once this lady arrived, uh, she taught them that that was wrong and she began to convince them that there was no reason for that. And sure enough, they, uh, they, they changed. Uh, uh, sure enough, three different villages early on in her ministry, she went from one to another to another very tribal people and she converted them all. And, and, and some friends came from Scotland to visit her to see what she had done see how the ministry was going and all that. And they got there and they could not believe what was going on. They couldn't believe the progress that she had made for the cause of Christ. And they were bragging about it and just, uh, uh, man, I just can't believe this. One of the village chiefs who had been converted got tired of hearing them talk about how much had been done. And he said these words, You have clearly forgotten to think of the woman's God. In other words, what he's saying is, it's not like God's not able to do this kind of stuff. You clearly have forgotten how big your God is. I wonder if sometimes when we hear things about the Great Commission and we hear about how we're supposed to be witnesses, if, if the, the overwhelming difficulty of the task does not somehow discourage us. My friend, these things, with men... This thing is impossible. But with God, all things are possible. And if he told us to go to the uttermost parts of the the earth, I just personally believe that there's somebody there that will be saved. So these men accepted God's proclamation in the Great Commission. But these men also accepted God's proclamation in the Daily Commission. As I mentioned earlier, if you set out at the beginning of the year to read a hundred books, that seems almost impossible. I sat in a personal productivity seminar led by one of the chief, uh, C, uh, chief executives of American Express for uh, India. And uh, he, was, he was teaching on how to, be, uh, uh, how to accomplish your goals. And he, and he used that example. He said, if you set a goal to read X number of books, that may seem very intimidating. But you know the best way to accomplish that goal? Start one page a day. And it seems very simple, but if you just read one page a day, you're one page closer than you were the day before. And I think that we get this idea that the Great Commission is so great in its scope that it's almost impossible. But if we would obey God in the daily commission, we would find out that the Great Commission is quite accomplishable. You say, what do you mean, Brother Andrew? I mean this. Notice in verse number 1. The Bible says in Acts chapter 17, Now when they had passed through Amphipolis... And Apollonia, they came to Thessalonica. Now, most of the time when the Bible says those types of things, we read right over them because they don't mean anything to us because we don't know anything about biblical geography. But tonight, I want to teach you a little bit about biblical geography because I struggle with it as well. This verse is teaching us that the Apostle Paul and Silas left Philippi where they were in chapter 16. Uh, They had just followed the Lord in His leading and the Macedonian call. We'll see that in just a moment. But now the Bible tells us, so they've left Philippi, jump to verse number 1, they passed through Amphipolis and Apollonia, and they arrive at Thessalonica, and that's where they begin to minister. 
Now, I want to show this to you on the screen. If you'll notice up there, this is a map of the second missionary journey of the Apostle Paul. Down here at the very bottom right-hand corner, you see Jerusalem, which is kind of uh, uh, what we'll read a lot about, uh, especially in the Old Testament. Uh, Some of the missions kind of went up towards Rome, which is more up in the top left-hand portion of the screen. But I want you to go to the next slide there, guys, if you can. We're going to zoom in on the very top left-hand side, and we're going to see how that Philippi is the very northernmost city there. You with me? It's the very most northern city. So that's where they were in chapter 16. They go to Amphipolis and then in Apollonia and then they jump over to Thessalonica. Now, I find it unique that they pass through both of those other cities. And you say, why does that matter? Because in the Apostle Paul's life, we see a a system of following God's leading when it comes to effective witness. It would make sense to me that if he was in Philippi, he would just jump one town over to Amphipolis, even though it's a very difficult town to pronounce, and he might struggle with that. Maybe that's why he didn't stop there. I don't know. But he doesn't stop there. Or I say, hey, you know what? Maybe another 15 miles, we'll kick up our feet and we'll witness some folks. Maybe we'll go door knocking. And that would be in Apollonia. But he he doesn't stop there. He goes all the way to Thessalonica. Now, there are people that suppose that the reason for this is because uh, there was a synagogue in Thessalonica. I would say to them, well, he had a whole week to do something in Amphipolis and Apollonia. So, why did he jump over two towns? When I mentioned earlier, he was uh, following God's call and the Macedonian call. Uh, Go back to chapter 16. I want you to see this. Verse number 7. The Bible says, the same two guys here, and they were come to Mysia, they essayed to go to Bithynia, but the Spirit suffered them not. In other words, it's saying they came to Mysia and they wanted to go to Bithynia, but the Spirit would not let them. Then the Bible goes on, and they passing by Mysia came down to Troas, and a vision appeared to Paul in the night. There stood a man of Macedonia and prayed him, saying, Come over into Macedonia and help us. It's like Bugs Bunny in, in Space Jam. He tells Michael Jordan, We need your help to beat the Monstars, right? Is, is that lost on any? Most of you have no idea what I'm talking about. All right. This is what we know as the Macedonian call in Scripture. Now, I, I, I don't want to overstate how important this is. Paul had a desire to go to Bithynia. He had a desire to go to Mysia. But the Bible tells us that the Spirit would not let him. Why does that matter? Because when and where you witness matters. Read on down, skip on down to verse number 14 in chapter number 16. Uh, The Bible tells us, and a certain woman named Lydia, this is the first person that they meet when they come into Macedonia, a seller of purple of the city of Thyatira, which worshiped God, heard us, whose heart the Lord opened. Let's read that all together again, okay? I'm going to repeat that. We'll read that all together. Whose heart the Lord opened. You say, Brother Andrew, are you telling me that it's not always the right place and the right time to witness? No, that's what the Bible's telling you. There was a time when the Apostle Paul wanted to go to the, uh, Asia Minor, 
where all of the churches that the Lord refers to in the book of Revelation in chapter 2 and 3, all of those churches, Philippi, uh, or I'm sorry, Ephesus, Smyrna, Pergamos, Thyatira, all of those, uh, Laodicea, all of those churches, Paul wanted to go there, but the Spirit would not let him. Why? Well, I don't know, maybe years later, he knew that John was going there. What I'm saying is, the Great Commission is overwhelming, but your witness will only ever be effective if you are sensitive to God's daily leading in your life. The reason most Christians never witness is because we're not aware that somebody might cross our path today who needs to hear the message of the gospel. We think of the world as this big overwhelming picture, so we do not affect those people that we come in contact with today. We pray in the morning that the Lord will bless our day, but we never say a prayer asking the Lord to show us people who we can talk to about His Son. We pray for missionaries on foreign fields, all the while failing to realize how important it is that the people here in America would also hear a clear presentation of the gospel. My point is this, the Great Commission is overwhelming at times, but it's so important that you, as a Christian, honor God in tomorrow in His daily commission in your life. That you would wake up in the morning and say, Dear God, help me be sensitive to those who might be sensitive to you today. Help my path to cross with a Lydia, someone who you have opened their heart. Have you ever tried convincing somebody to get saved? It's very difficult. If they're opposed to it, if they're against it, you might as well be trying to get that wall back there saved. That's where God's work comes in. And you say, Brother Andrew, do you believe in divine appointments? Oh, absolutely. I believe that the man that passed by our church last Sunday, who Brother Brian almost recklessly hit with his vehicle that morning coming into church, I believe with all my heart that was a divine appointment that Brother Jim and Brother Brian would be able to meet with that man and witness to him and see him get saved that morning. I just believe that God is big enough to have those types of things mapped out in his grand plan. Yeah, these men did not have to meet, man, us Baptist preachers, we want to meet about everything. These men didn't have to go to fellowship meetings and and retreats and spiritual revivals. All they were doing was honoring God's call that he had placed on their life. Very simply, but very successfully. These men were, they had accepted God's proclamation. My second point is this this evening. Not only had they accepted God's proclamation, go to the world, that means you affect your world. The people that are in your world tomorrow, you affect them. They had accepted that proclamation. Notice number two, they accepted God's plan for it. They accepted God's plan. We try to come up with, you know, with all of our technology and stuff today, we try to come up with very... Uh, in, in, inventive ways on how to reach the lost with the gospel, I kind of think God's plan works best. Amen. It really boils down to go, win, baptize, and teach. Amen. Uh, what I mean is, if you'll, you you got to go, right? You got to go. 
And then while you're going, I just believe if you if you are doing it the right way, you're trying to be sensitive to every uh, uh, every movement of the Lord's leading in your life. He will make your path cross by somebody who you can witness to. They will get saved. And it's very important that you get them in the church so that they can get baptized because there is structure in the church. There is safety in the church. There is relationships in the church. A lot of these people are coming from who knows what kind of past. That's why the church was made, I believe, was for fellowship for the believer and the evangelism of the world. That is the purpose of the church. And so you get them in the church through baptism. And then when they're here, you teach them, you disciple them. No person in their right mind would leave Southwest Hospital after just having a baby, hold their hand until they get to the parking lot, and then look at that baby and say, all right, now you're on your own. What are the chances that baby makes it through the night? Man, there's a lot of coyotes up there in Fort Worth. He wouldn't. And we wouldn't do that to them. Why? Because we've got to take that baby home. We've got to nurture that baby. We've got to protect that baby. We've got to teach that baby that sockets on the wall are dangerous. We've got, to teach, we've got to give that baby milk at first and help them consume the milk at first. And then we'll graduate from milk to, I think, like rice. I'm not a great dad, so I'm not sure. But rice little cereal things and then we'll go maybe up to applesauce and those little pureed foods and and we'll we'll graduate it to eventually one day they're going to be a big strong boy and they can handle steak carne asada they can handle that because they've grown up am i crazy The, the the strategy is is always been the same go win baptize and teach now here's what it takes though these men had something that i at least on one of these next four points we're failing at okay number one i said i had two main points but they're main points now i have four sub points okay (laughs) this plan requires commitment if there is anything lost In the American church, it is commitment. Look, these guys, verse number two, this is what the Bible says. Back back where we're at, uh, I got to get, Acts 17, okay? Acts 17, verse number two, the Bible says, And Paul, as his manner was. The Bible said about Jesus, he went into the synagogue as was his custom. What does that mean? Oh, it was was habitual. It was their habit. Every week they got up and they went to the synagogue. And you got to ask yourself this. Why was Paul going to the synagogue? Was he getting some type of worshipful insight there that he could not get? No, the Bible tells us he said at the feet of Jesus. I mean, he, he received direct revelation from the Lord Jesus himself. So Paul probably wasn't going to the synagogue to learn something. Why was he going to the synagogue? Oh, because he knew that's where people went to find God. And since God was not at the synagogue, the apostle Paul thought he might take him with him. But it was, it was his habit. As his manner was, he went to the synagogue. Would you say that Noticing a need and confronting people with their need for, their savior, for a Savior, would you say that that's a habit of yours? 
Now, we can sit and say amen when I get all worked up about the state of our world. But those amens fall flat on their face when you have to admit none of us truly are as committed to being the witness we need to be. I, I mean, if Paul, as his manner was, you know what Paul did? He made a weekly time to go soul winning. As his manner was. And it just so happens. Now, this may surprise you. I'm getting all worked up and I shouldn't. We should just talk about this. But, but it just so happens his was on Saturday. The Sabbath day, seventh day of the week. Did you know, if you, if you may not know this, our church has an organized time where we meet together on Saturday, Amen. biblical, Amen. Amen. where we go out and confront people with their need for salvation. Why do we do that? Because God's not out there unless we take him. Amen. Unless we take him to the lost they will never believe on a Savior that gave everything for their soul. It, it takes commitment. And I've got a lot more to say about that, but really I don't think we need to. The Bible says, Psalm 126, verse 6, He that goeth forth weeping, bearing precious seed, shall doubtless... Now that's a promise. That is a promise. You say, Brother Andrew, I'm just not a very good soul winner. Well, you've got to make sure you're doing the first two things. Are you going forth and are you committed spiritually and emotionally? Are you going? Because that's the process, right? You got to go. You got to be weeping. You got to be invested. It's not just enough to go with a dry eye. And, uh, you know, you can go knock on a thousand doors and sell blinds. That doesn't matter. You got to go knowing that the weight of men's souls hang in the balance. Are you going? Because no harvest is ever promised before sowing. My wife, uh, a few years ago, changed over to where we always go to the, uh, she does the grocery store pickup thing, right? Where we, um, where we order online, we drive to the grocery store, we input our number or our last name, which is longer than the number. And, and we input that. And, and, and we pull up and they come out and they load our groceries for us. I'll tell you right now, it's a wonderful thing. But that's the way we want everything in our world. We cannot somehow post something on Twitter or Facebook and say, man, God sure is good. And expect people to come to us and say, what must I do to be saved? There is no drive-through window when it comes to being an effective soul winner. There is always a time of labor and sowing before there is a time of harvest and reaping. It's just the way it works. This is natural. So it takes great commitment. Where will you be next Saturday? I mean, I hate to put you on the spot like that. I just hate to do it, but where will you be? What is so important in your life that not only, not even once a week, not once a month, we cannot commit to being the soul winner that we should be. This was a habitual thing that the Apostle Paul did. Why? Because it takes commitment. Not only does it take commitment, but it takes consistency. Notice this in verse number 2. And Paul, as his manner was, went in unto them, and three Sabbath days 
reasoned with them. Now, don't mistake what that's saying. It's not saying three consecutive days. Sabbath only rolls around once a week, right? We all understand how that works. It's uh, Friday, 6 o'clock to Saturday, 6 o'clock. So we understand that that only rolls around one time a week. And so Paul waited. He, he witnessed to them and reasoned with them out of the scripture, waited an entire week, went back, witnessed to them, reasoned with them, waited another entire week. And the Bible says he does this three weeks before he actually, at least that's the way the Bible makes it seem, before he actually saw fruit, he went back three times. Going to the door, knocking on the door, saying, hey, do you know if you die today? Are you sure you go to heaven? Sometimes they'll say, nah, and I really don't care to know. And what we do is like, well, Lord, I tried. Bring down the fire. We have relatives that are lost. And we pray for them one time. It's like, well, the Lord knows my heart on the matter. Man, it does my heart so good. I'll never forget, uh, it was about two years ago now, Brother Robert Baeza came into church and he said that his dad that was 95 years old, I believe, and he'd been praying for for years and years and years, accepted the Lord as his personal Savior at 95 years of age. It was just maybe six months ago now that a man called, a, uh, called preacher and uh, every, every time dad went into his business, he would always tell him, hey, I got a seat at the church for you. And every time the guy would say, I appreciate that preacher. For 30 years, this conversation went on. He called my dad the other day and said, hey, preacher, I'm ready for that seat now. Me and dad went over to his house and witnessed to him. He accepted Christ as his personal savior. 30 years worth of commitment. 30 years worth of consistency. Some people take longer to win. The Apostle Paul, it didn't happen overnight. It didn't happen overnight. I, I, I think that uh, he has, was con- consenting unto the death to Stephen, and the Lord was already working in his heart. And on his way to Damascus, there he saw the Lord. It took time. And I think there's a lot of people in this world that are just going to take a little bit more than, here's a track. Read that if you get some time. It takes commitment and it takes consistency. Galatians chapter 6 verse 9, And let us not be weary in well-doing, for in due season we shall reap, do you all know the rest of the verse? If we faint not. Reaping is not promised to those who faint. It is only promised to those who faint not. It takes commitment. This plan of going, so, uh, going, winning, baptizing, and teaching. It takes commitment. It takes consistency. Thirdly, it takes confidence. Verse number two. He reasoned, uh, he, and three Sabbath days reasoned with them out of the scriptures. Now, I have no doubt that the Apostle Paul must have been a handful in theological discourse. I mean, could you imagine trying to argue with a Pharisee of the Pharisees? Could you imagine trying to argue with a guy who had learned, probably committed to memory the entire Pentateuch? Could you imagine arguing with that guy? But the Apostle Paul, he would go to the synagogue and he would, he would exchange with these men. And he would only use that which was in the Old Testament, that which, would the, which they could agree with. And, and he would reason with them and he would talk to them and he would say, Hey, uh, have you thought lately about how Noah's Ark only had one window? 
And that window wasn't in the front so Noah could drive. It wasn't in the side so Noah could drive. It wasn't to the right or the back. Noah couldn't even seal the door for the Lord shut the door and sealed the door. The only window was up. You know what I think that means? I think that means there's only one way to heaven. You can't get there through works. You can't get there through uh, some type of ritual. The only way to heaven is through my Savior, Jesus Christ. Maybe he mentioned to them how uh, Moses and, and Egypt, how the tenth plague killed all the eldest there, the firstborn. And, and maybe he mentioned to them about that Passover lamb that they would have to go and, and they would kill that Passover lamb and then the blood was applied to the doorposts. And maybe he would say something like this, I believe that what that typified, what that showed us, it foreshadowed the eventual death of Jesus on the cross and the blood on the doorpost was the blood that was spilled on the cross and now has been applied Applied to the mercy seat for my salvation. Maybe the Apostle Paul mentioned to them something about how uh, God uh, loved them and, and cared for them so much that he would send his only begotten son for them. I, I just think that maybe these were the conversations he would have. Now remember, he went to the synagogue where people probably knew their stuff. You can ask preacher his opinion on this matter. I would lot rather witness to the rankest sinner than I would the theologian that thinks they're saved. They know just enough scripture to hurt themselves. And you have to explain to them how that's out of context and how that doesn't make sense. And that was the battle the Apostle Paul had. And yet he had confidence. Now do not mishear me. He did not have confidence in his ability. He had confidence in the scripture. Even the most wise scholar in all the world cannot find one error in that book. The Bible says the words of the Lord are pure words. As, as tried in a fire seven times. They, pure, pure gold. They're, they're pure words. The Bible says in John chapter 17 verse 17. Sanctify them through uh, thy truth. Thy word is truth. You see, you either believe this book is perfect or you don't. And then in your witness, you either believe that you can present this book as it is and as God gave it to us and it's effective and it's sufficient or it's not. Now, here's the only problem in that whole system. This is adequate. He is adequate. Here's the, I I would say, probably the number one reason most of us don't witness like we should. We are not adequate. Now, let me ask you, is that God's fault? Now, I'm not talking to the person who's been saved six weeks. But I am absolutely talking to the person that's been saved 30 years. How long are you going to be a novice in the scripture? How long are you going to let your limited ability to have a a discussion with somebody to to somehow give an apologetic defense somehow give give a a defense for where you stand how long are you going to be let that be the limiting factor in this church's ability to witness to johnson county i'm not trying to make you feel bad but there comes a time when the student must graduate to the teacher For the time came when you should have been teachers, but you have needs again that somebody would show you the first oracles of the scripture. 
It, there's a time when we graduate from, meat, uh, from milk to meat. Are you there? And th- I, 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 if you're not, there's so many resources today. If there's one good thing that technology has brought us, it is that the Bible is accessible 100% of the time, all day, every day, as long as you have battery. And I'm, I, I truly am not trying to make you feel bad because there are times when I feel inadequate in the way that I present uh, uh, truth and I, I have to give defenses to, to people. But I'm saying this, should that be the discouraging factor in your ability to learn it more? Can we not all agree that there is a great need that we would learn Scripture better? Amen. That we would gain more knowledge so that I'll never forget uh, second semester in Bible college is advanced evangelism. We have the first year, which is a prerequisite. It's called personal evangelism, which is five fingers. Uh, you got to know that God loves you. You got to know you're a sinner. You got to know that there's a penalty for your sin. You got to know that Jesus died to pay that penalty. And you got to accept that uh, gift of salvation. So it's a five plan. I mean, literally, they hand us a, a print out of a hand and we fill it out on the fingers. It's like if I just draw a beak and a little tail on it, it'll be a turkey, right? Like the Thanksgiving turkeys we have our children make. That's personal evangelism. Okay, this next semester was advanced evangelism. I took advanced evangelism and I'll never forget the first test. The very first question on that test was give 10 verses to defend the deity of Christ. And I got three. Can you think of a doctrine that is more important to know about than the deity of Christ? Maybe bibliology, because without this defense of the Bible, you can't prove that he truly is God. And I sat there convicted and discouraged knowing I was going to fail. Let me ask you, could you give me 10 verses? I'm truly not trying to make you feel bad, but I am trying to tell you there is a great need that we would get deeper in the Scripture and learn it for ourselves. It is not enough that our pastor knows Scripture. We must know Scripture if we're going to change the world with the Gospel. It takes commitment. It takes consistency. It takes confidence. And then finally, this plan required a centerpiece. Notice in verse number three, this was the centerpiece of the gospel. This is what Paul told every day when he went into the synagogue. Opening and alleging that Christ must needs have suffered and risen again from the dead. And that this Jesus whom I preach unto you is Christ. The gospel and your witnessing is not about you. There have been so many times when, when, when I have felt inadequate when I go to a door and, you know, you just never know who's going to step from behind that door. You just are so afraid that all of them are going to be more closely related to a grizzly bear than they are your mom or your dad, you see. And, and, and you're just so terrified. And, and there have been times, I remember not long ago, I was with Brother Kevin Jarrell, I guess it was about, it was pretty long ago now, but uh, we, we got to arguing with a guy about... Uh, he was kind of like Jewish, but he wasn't. He, he was like a reformed Jew. And so he held to the dietary laws and the restrictions of the Mosaic law. And, and, and we argued with him there. And, you know, there, there have been times when I have felt inadequate, but this is the truth of the matter. You can argue that stuff all day. That stuff is peripheral. The most important thing is that you would be able to show somebody 
that Christ died for them, was buried, and rose again on the third day, and by believing in Him, they can have eternal life. That is the centerpiece of the gospel. And that is what matters. And that's what we need to know as Christians. That's what Paul spoke about most frequently. In fact, 1 Corinthians, I think Paul could have said a lot of stuff to a lot of people. And he had more scriptural knowledge than any of us in this room. But he said, And I, brethren, when I came to you, came not with excellency of speech, of wisdom, declaring unto you the testimony of God. And my speech and my preaching was not with enticing words of man's wisdom, but in demonstration of the Spirit and of power, that your faith should not stand in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. I think a lot of times we're concerned that after we get done talking to someone, our inability to effectively communicate the gospel presentation is going to somehow get them more lost than what they already are. But Paul says, when I came to you, I taught the most simple and plain gospel. You know what he probably did? He probably carried little tracks with hands on them. And he probably drew out, did you know that God loves you? Did you know that, there, that, that, that there's, you're a sinner? Did you know there's a penalty for that sin? And did you know that by receiving his gift of salvation, you can, you can have eternal life? I, he probably wrote it out on a finger. It's all simple. Why? Because people's ability to get saved is not directly tied to your ability to tell them how to be saved. At some point where your weaknesses lie, the Holy Spirit comes in and fills the voids that you leave out. And the Lord Jesus does His work and saves people. I'll never forget seeing a a picture. You've seen this picture, no doubt. It's going to be put on the screen here. Um, This is a picture of uh, the flag of Iwo Jima. This particular image has been used, has been immortalized in American history These young men in World War II had been instructed to take this flag to the top of of this mountain here. Their commanding officer, there was already a flag there, but it was small. And the pole was very tall, it just wasn't impressive at all. So the commanding officer gave three Marines, and these other three men jumped in, there's six Marines there total gave these men the task to take this much larger flag to the top of the mountain and mount it there. They took the flag folded like a Marine would have it folded. They found there a a water pipe of the, uh, an old Japanese water pipe. They mounted the flag on that water pipe. And this photographer stands there and he's, he's getting, he sees what's happening. He's getting ready to take the picture. And at the last minute, uh, a cameraman comes up, because if you've ever seen, we actually have video of this particular image as well. A cameraman comes up to him and says, am I in your way? And he says, no, you're not in my way. And he turns to see, and they're already raising the flag. And so without his face in the viewfinder, he turns the camera over. I mean, he's been setting this shot up for quite a while. He turns the camera over and he snaps this picture. This picture uh, now has a monument made to it. Uh, The men are all made in bronze. This picture, to me, speaks of patriotism like few other pictures in all American history. 
It speaks of perseverance in hard times. You see, Iwo Jima was a... Uh, was uh, uh, the first Japanese home front that the Americans took in World War II. And the Japanese had, had very much enforced it. In fact, a lot of Americans lost their life. In fact, three of these men pictured here lose their life in the next 30 days. Why does this picture mean so much to us? Because it speaks of teamwork. It speaks of dedication and commitment even in the middle of adversity. These men were afraid they were going to get shot on the way up to the mountain. These men, as I said, three of them later on died. One of them very soon after this picture was taken. You say, why don't I show this to you? Because I think this picture most adequately expresses what we are to be doing with the Lord Jesus. You know why I say that? Because the Bible says, if I be lift up, I will draw all men unto myself. Do you know what Joshua Baptist Church is trying to do? Do you know what these men here tonight are trying to do? They're at the base of the flag, lifting Jesus up high. Do you know the reason the commanding officer wanted this flag raised? Because you could see that flag at every point in the island. The other flag was too small. This flag was big enough and was high enough that you could observe it from every point in the island. And he said... He wanted his men to know what they were fighting for. We have a call so much larger than us. Are you at the base of the flag? Saturday I'll be here. I'll be at the base of the flag. Will you be here? These men are at the base of the flag. Will you be there with them? If we're going to change this world... It's only going to be done if we grab the flagpole and lift our Savior high. The only way this world's going to be turned right side up is if we lift Jesus up. 